Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you want to thank you for your word. We ask, O oh God, that you will breathe upon it, that, Father, it will illuminate our hearts, it will break yokes, lift burdens. Do that and even more, Heavenly Father, in the way that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to start a two-part series uh, today. Um, the, the title for the two-part series is God Has Chosen You. And our, our foundation text is really um, most of the chapter, certainly up to the 12th verse, 13th verse of 1 Samuel 16, um, 1 Samuel 16. And you know the story, if I paraphrase it. Um, Saul God had decided that Saul had gone astray, and he had gone astray. Um, and so God said to Samuel, the prophet, uh, that he should go to the house of Jesse, and that he, he, God, had prepared a son of Jesse to become king of Israel. And so Samuel's initial uh, response was one of fear, because if I go... Then Saul, who, who has obviously fallen out of favor with God, will get angry and, in Samuel's words, might kill me. But God said to him, don't worry, I've got a strategy to cover that. Um, take a, hip, a heifer um, and say you're going to do a sacrifice and actually do the sacrifice. Then invite Jesse and his sons to the, to the sacrifice and I will tell you which one of them will be king. So Samuel did what God said. He went to Bethlehem, um, said he wanted to um, um, perform a sacrifice unto the Lord and invited Jesse and the elders of the town to the sacrifice. And uh, nobody knew that Samuel was on a mission for God. It was just him and God who knew what real, the real mission was. Everyone thought it was the sacrifice, but the real mission was to choose a king, to choose someone for an assignment that God had for him. And as the sacrifice is about to start, they invite all the sons to come, all the sons, they think. Um, and uh, Jesse, Jesse passes Eliab. It's almost like a parade. Um, Eliab walks before them. And Samuel thinks this must be the one because Eliab has the bearing of a king. You know, the, the, his external appearance, his stature, the way he carried himself. He, uh, Samuel thought this must be him. This is, must be the king that God has chosen. But in verse 7, God says something to Samuel. He says in verse 7, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature. Because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
He says to Samuel, no, 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 no. You're judging externally, and I don't judge externally. I judge on what is in the person's heart. And in this person's heart, I haven't found my king. And so it's interesting what is happening. You know, when I, when I read this scripture, I actually pray that I will arrive at that place. All the people around think that it's all about the sacrifice. But here is Samuel having a conversation with God which no one knows about. I pray that we all will get there, that you will sit at an interview and the people who are interviewing you, you're having a conversation with them, but more importantly, you're having a conversation with God about what is happening. Amen? And so, so God says to him, no, it's not, it's not him. So Jesse, when he tells Jesse, Jesse thinks, well, it must be Abinadab. And he brings Abinadab forward and passes him. And, and the Lord says, no, it's not Abinadab. And then they bring Shammah, and Shammah passes before Samuel. And God says, no, it's not that. It's not him. And they bring the seven sons of Jesse. And each one, God says, that's not the one, that's not the one, that's not the one. Now, because Samuel knows God, and God said to him, I am going to choose a king from one of Jesse's sons. When the seven are passed by, and Jesse is just wondering, so what next? Samuel says to him, there must be another son. And then Jesse remembers, oh yeah, there is. This, this young, young son, my youngest son. I guess Jesse was saying to him, he's not really relevant. He doesn't look like a king. You know, he's not really the one you want. He's got to be one of these, his older brothers. And then the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, that's the one. And Samuel says, we stand, nobody sits down, go and fetch him. And they say, well, he's looking after the sheep. We'll talk about that on the 11th, what looking after the sheep means. And they go and fetch him. And when he comes, the Lord says, that's the one. And he anoints David with oil. And the Bible says his spirit comes... The Spirit of the Lord comes upon David. The thrust of our message, God has chosen you, rests in that seventh verse. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, we've been talking about the heart, and this kind of brings an end to that whole series about the heart, even though it's the start of a new series. God says to Samuel, it's all about the heart. It's not the external, it's about the heart. And really, what we want to find out in, the next, in, the, in this two-part series is what made God choose David. Because you see, if I can find out what made God choose David then I can follow in David's steps so that God can choose me. Now, he's chosen us generally in that we are saved, but we're talking about God choosing you for a particular work, a particular assignment, positioning you to fulfill that assignment. And God says, I chose him because of his heart. In fact, Paul, the apostle, gives an amazing testimony from God in Acts, the 13th chapter and the 22nd verse, about David. And he says in that scripture, and when he had removed him, when God had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony. God himself gave testimony. 
and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. God himself said, this David guy, he's special. My testimony concerning him is that he's a man after my heart, and he will do all my will. Now, even if you're just a casual reader of the Bible, this should pose a problem for you. Because there is a challenge, God. Because this David that you say is a man after your heart is the same David who took another man's wife just because he had authority and power. One day he's having, he's, one day he's walking around on his roof, sees another man's wife having a bath, uses his position as king, abuses his position, sends for her, and sleeps with her. This David, you say, is a man after your own heart, committed adultery. And it gets worse. He didn't just commit adultery. When he realized that the woman he slept with, another man's wife, was pregnant, he now concocts, concocts an amazing fraud to murder the man. You just need to read the story to understand the depth of the sins that David committed. He sleeps with the woman. She tells him she's pregnant. He then sends for the woman's husband who is fighting a war protecting him and his kingdom to come back. He invites the man to his house, gets the man drunk, hoping that in the man's drunken state, the man will go back home, sleep with his wife, and then he can pass off the child that is really his as the man's. But he didn't reckon with the man being as noble as the man was. Because the man said, how can I go home to sleep with my wife on that lovely bed when the ark of God is still in a tent and my chief of staff, my chief of army staff, my boss is still at the war front. Joab was at the war front. I can't do that. So I will sleep at the gate of my king with the servants. How many of you know David was in trouble? The man said, I'm going to sleep at the gate of your, I'm going to sleep at your gate with your servants. So David now hatches another plot. He gives the man a letter that was really the man's death sentence, but the man didn't know. Uriah didn't know. And he takes the letter, Uriah. The letter was his death sentence. In the letter, David had given instructions to his chief of army staff, Joab, that the bearer of this letter, make sure you put him in a place where the battle is hottest and then withdraw all the support from him so that they can kill him. And that's exactly what Joab did. So he committed murder, deception, fraud. And yet God says, this is a man after my heart. The question you and I must be asking is, God, how can someone who has done such abominable things end up being a man after your own heart? How many want to know the answer to that? Yeah? How many? Okay. 
Well, let's try and find out the answer because the answer will help us in our walk with God. Because when we then find out the answer, we know that because, you see, the beauty about David's life is that the Psalms explains his whole life to us. You know, the Psalms is a window into a man's prayer life with God. So we see the highs, the lows. We see the times he's in de- literally in despair. And we see the times that he's on a, on a high with God. So let's find out what that is. You know, it's interesting, uh, before we dive into that, when I, started, when I started preparing this message and I was, I was studying the scripture, I felt the Lord give me a word for someone. So let me get that out of the way and we dive into the scriptures. The scriptures start by the Lord saying to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king amongst his sons. There are many things in life that can cause us to mourn. Some of them orchestrated from the pits of hell. Of course, the most obvious things are the loss of a loved one. We enter a period of mourning, of grief, of sorrow, of sadness. Sometimes we despair. We get despondent. But then it's not just that that takes us to a point of grief. Sometimes I've seen young ladies who have invested in a relationship and then the relationship falls apart. They enter grief. They mourn for the death of that relationship. They had hopes in it. I've seen people whose businesses have collapsed and they mourn for the death of the business. They had so many dreams and so they had hopes about the business. They enter a period of mourning and despair. I've seen people who have been betrayed by close friends and they enter a period of mourning. A lot of times when expectation is suddenly cut off, people mourn and grieve. And mourning and grieving is a natural process. It's a way that God allows us to deal with circumstances. But then God said to Samuel, and I felt this was a word for someone before I just dive into the sermon. God said to Samuel that, how long will you mourn for Saul? And Samuel must have been in mourning for Saul. He was the prophet of the nation. This was the king of the nation. How could the king of the nation come to this kind of end? But God said to him, how long will you mourn for Saul? What was God saying to him? There's a time for mourning. God allows it. There's a time to deal with the sadness, the sorrow, the despair, the despondency. But for God, it's never a full stop. The enemy wants it to be a full stop. Game over, end of. But for God, it's always a comma. There's something after because God sees the end from the beginning and he always has a plan that will take us through a dark time. On the other side of this hill, the day is brighter, dawn is coming, a new day has arrived, there's a new beginning. And I felt God wanted to say that to someone that don't sit there in that despair, that despondency, mourning and grieving indefinitely. God wanted to say to someone, how long will you mourn? Lift up your head, he says to Samuel. Go to Jesse's house. 
This thing continues. My plan must be fulfilled. The enemy can't stop it from coming to pass. It's not a full stop. It's not an end. It was a hiatus. It was a comma. It was a break. But God is saying, I still have a plan for a king of my kingdom. I have chosen him myself. He's in Jesse's house. Go. So can I say to someone that don't sit there. This is a word from God to you. Yes, it happened. Yes, it hits you. Yes, it stopped, it stopped things. But the stop was a temporary one. It wasn't a full stop. It was a comma. It is time to go. Go on, say to the person next to you, time to go. Go on, say it boldly. And if you're watching online, it's time. If you're worshiping with us online, it's time to go. So let's go back to the message. and deliver that word. What is it that made... David, a man after God's heart. Four things that are very clear. Number one, he had faith in God. <laughs> he just had trust in God. All through David's life, in the valley and on the hill, in the cave at Adulam, when there was no one with him apart from 400 misfits, when his son Absalom was conspiring against him, when he had to pretend like he was mad to escape Akish the king, when he was going through some tough times hiding with the enemies, being taken in by the Philistines. These were no easy times. But one thing that shone through David's life is that David had faith in God. He trusted that Despite the fact that my natural circumstances seem against me, the God I serve will take me through and will see me through. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews 11 verse 6, one of my favorite scriptures, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Without faith it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That tells me that where there is a little faith, God is a little pleased. Where there is more faith, God is more pleased. Where there is much faith, God is much pleased. Because there's just something about faith that touches God's heart, maybe in a way that you and I have never understood. I'm sure you remember the story of the centurion. His servant was ill. He wasn't even a believer. But he believed in the word of God, Jesus Christ. He was a Roman. And his servant is ill. He goes to Jesus. He knows Jesus can do it. And he says to Jesus, you know, come and heal my, heal, heal my servant. My servant is ill. And then Jesus, heart of compassion, the epitome of compassion itself, says, I will come to your house and heal your servant. Listen to what that Roman centurion says. The centurion answered Matthew 8 verses 7 to 9 and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes, and to another come and he comes, and to my servant do this and he does it. The centurion said, you, you don't have to come. I understand who you are. He says, I have a hundred soldiers under me. And when I say to them, go, they don't even ask. They are off. When I say to them, come, they come. When I say to my servant, go, he goes. 
I said to my servant, come. He comes. What was he saying to Jesus? I get this authority thing. He says, now, that's just my hundred soldiers. You are the creator of the ends of the earth. Anything you say should come will come. Anything you say should go will go. You don't have to physically come to my house. Just speak the word. You are the word. And the word will achieve whatever you want the word to achieve. I get it, Jesus. And what was Jesus' response? You need to really read Jesus' response. Verse 10. The Bible says, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. The Passion Translation says, he was astonished when he heard this and said to those who were following him, he has greater faith than anyone I've encountered in Israel. The New Living Translation says, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. When Jesus saw his faith, the Bible says he marveled. He was astonished. He was amazed. That this man has, I haven't seen faith like this. My prayer is that that will be our testimony, yours and mine, that we'll be faced with circumstances that will challenge us not to trust God but that we will choose to trust God, to have faith in God, and that God in heaven will call the angels and say, see my daughter, I marvel at her faith. I'm astonished at her faith. I am amazed as to how she can trust me despite circumstances saying the contrary. Can someone say amen? And there are so many examples of David's faith. How did he kill the bear? How did he kill the lion? Because he had faith in God. And when Goliath came and terrorized Israel so that a king was terrified in his palace, soldiers who were war veterans were terrified of this giant that was cursing the God of Israel. But this young boy who had faith in his God and who knew is the fight, it, it's not a question of Goliath against me. It's the God I serve. And Goliath next to the God I serve is a minute, tiny, insignificant collection of flesh. This young boy knew that as long as I trust my God, have faith in him, he will deliver me. Listen to what he said in 1 Samuel 17 verse, verse 37. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. When Saul heard it, Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Because the boy had faith in God. His faith commended him to God. God looked into his heart and he could see someone who trusted him against all the odds. May that be your testimony as well. Number two, what made him a man after God's heart? Number two, he loved God's word. If the truth be told, a lot of us read the word because we are sensible enough to know that we should read the word. But how many in the body of Christ genuinely have a love affair with the word? And you know what love is. At least you should know what love is. Those of you who are married, you love your spouses. I hope. 
And there are so, so many times we say, we use that word love in a random way. I love the food. I love the game. I love ice cream. It's a poor version. But if the truth be told, it's more than we have for the word of God. How many people genuinely love God's word? Passionate about it. David loved God's word. God knew that David loves my word. If you read Psalms 119, it's an amazing chapter that puts before us and challenges us. That shows the heart of someone who loves God, God's word. Says it, uses phrases like it's sweeter than honey. Really? Is more to be desired than gold and silver. Really? He says in Psalms 69 verse 30, I will praise the name. No, it says in Psalms 119 verse 14, I find more joy in following you, what you tell, doing what you tell me to do than in chasing after the wealth of the world. He says in verse 47 and 48, My passion and delight is in your word. For I love what you say to me. I long, I long for more revelation of your truth. For I love the light of your word as I meditate on your decrees. Saying I, I love your word. I can't get enough of it. I wake up early in the morning and that's what I'm looking for. I have to be pulled away from your word because I have work to go to. Mm. I would rather spend the whole day in your word. And when I go to work, I carry your word with me. I'm meditating on the scriptures as I'm getting on the bus, as I'm getting into the car, as I'm getting on the tube. I can't wait for my lunch break to find a quiet place so I can get into your word. Because I just love your word. I meditate on it day and night. I can't wait for the evening to find a quiet time after I've had supper to spend in your word. I love your word. He says in Psalms 119 verse 81, I am lovesick with yearnings for more of your salvation. For my heart is entwined with your word. We are, we are intimately, intricately linked, merged together, my heart and your word. Is it any wonder that God looked into that heart and said, this is a man who has a heart that is after my own heart. Number three, he had a heart of gratitude. Now when we read the Psalms, we could actually think that David just sat down over a period of a week or two and wrote the Psalms. But we must remind ourselves that the Psalms are a glimpse into the life of a man. The lows and the highs. We must understand that the Psalms are a window that shows us a man's relationship with God through life. And so the Psalms were written as he journeyed through life. Some of the Psalms were written in very, very challenging circumstances. His son just slept with his wife on the roof of the family house and the whole city knew. Some of the Psalms were written out of that. 
out of being stoned and chased, even though you knew you were king, by people who had turned against you, the deceit, the, the treachery of people who were for you, but who were now being enticed by your son and who had gone to join your son to hunt you down. The Psalms were written as he became a fugitive, escaping from those who were chasing him, living in a cave and, and desiring help in the cave. And God sends him not the kind of help that you and I would, 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 would say this is help. 400 men who are the misfits of the world, dejected, rejected, broke men. And all the Psalms are written as he journeys through this life. As he pretends to be a madman just to escape with his life. Yet he knows, and this is the paradox, he knows that I've been anointed king. But nothing around him is speaking to his kingship. And in all these Psalms, in all these circumstances, what do we get? countless psalms of gratitude to God. You see, David knew what we all just need to know. That my circumstances can change the story. God is good and his mercies endure forever. My circumstances are not permanent. This one too will pass. And God's goodness will shine through. David understood that. That how can we not thank this God who daily loads us with benefits? How can we not thank this God who delivered me from my enemies? How can we not thank this God who protected me, surrounded me with favor on all sides? Even though it doesn't look like that now, my circumstances doesn't change God. There's no variableness or change, or, or, or change of turning in God. He is God the same yesterday, today, and forever. David understood that. So he can say like in Psalm 69 verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. When he writes Psalm 34 verses 1 to 3, it's actually the psalm that he wrote apparently after he had just escaped from Achish, the king, the Canaanite king that wanted to kill him. And to escape from Achish, he had to pretend to be a madman, saliva drooling down, his clothes torn, scratching things. And they, dis they, they disparaged him as a madman. That was how he escaped. And guess what he now says after he escapes? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. And listen to this wonderful invitation. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You see, he understood that as we are told, and we don't always take it in, Ephesians 5 verse 20 says, For all things give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says, In all things, give thanks. And so if I have to give thanks for all things, 
and I have to give thanks in all things. I have to have a heart of gratitude all the time, irrespective of whether I am in the valley or on the hill, in the darkness or in the light, in a hard place or in a good place. I have to have a heart of gratitude all the time. And you know, I've said it many times from this pulpit, and I can say it again, that if God does nothing else in my life, zero, heaven says, from now till you die, we are not adding anything to your life. The truth is I will be eternally grateful with a heart of gratitude for all that he has already done. It is more than I could ask for, more than I could have imagined. I have no right preaching the gospel to anybody Considering where I've come from, considering even how I, how I continue to journey, no right whatsoever. It's the marvel of God that he can use me to preach the gospel to anybody. I'm very aware that I'm not the best preacher. I hear some pretty good preachers. But somehow, even with my, my not being the best preacher, I get enough people who come to listen to me share the word of God every Sunday, both in person and online. It's a marvel of God. I don't qualify whatsoever. In fact, if I was chairperson of the committee to choose who was qualified to preach the gospel, I assure you I would disqualify myself with what I know. But then God has chosen to qualify me and use me as a messenger of his. If he does nothing else in my life, nothing else, he has done more than enough. Seriously, God has done, God has been good to me. God has been good to me. To have a wife like I have, inshallah, believe me, God has been good to me. Seriously so. I'm not saying this lightly. To give me her, God has been good to me. I don't deserve her, but God chose to bless me with her. That's just, so you don't have to do anything else. My heart is eternally grateful to God, grateful for the small things. You know, I always say it all the time, when I, when I go into Tesco, it's a little thanksgiving service for me. Because I remember the time that I used to calculate. And somebody might still be there. I, the maths, I, I failed maths, but I became good at maths in Tesco. I'll be calculating. Two pounds 99, one pounds 30, three pounds 20. Just trying to calculate so that I don't get to the, to the till and the, the things are too many. And somebody might be there. I want to say to you, it will pass. Because that same person you used to do the calculations, now I just go into Tesco. And I wheel the trolley, and it's a mini Thanksgiving service. Yeah, it's true. And I don't calculate anymore. How will I not be thankful to that God who did that for me? Faced some dark times in my life, challenging times. The loss of a wife, a serious sickness, serious affliction of a son. Dark times. And most of you didn't even know I would leave the hospital and come here to preach to three services we were preaching then. And rush back to the hospital. After the service, loads of people will come for counseling. And when they tell me what their issues are, 
I can't pay my mortgage. I say, my son is dying in the hospital. Your mortgage. <laughs> Give me mortgage problem and save my son. But in all those dark times, my heart of gratitude, that anybody will tell you who's close to me, never ceased. That God, you know what you're doing. You are in control. All things work together for my good. You will take us through this one. We will come out on the other side. It might be dark today, but tomorrow it's going to be shining bright. Don't let your circumstances steal your heart of gratitude. It's actually warfare to be thankful at all times. That's why the Bible says, for all things, give thanks. And just in case we don't understand it, in all things, give thanks. There's always something to thank God for, even in the midst of the storm. Frankly, the fact that you're alive to face the storm. Thank God for it. They are repossessing my house. Thank God that I am alive to go and rent another house when they take it. Always find a reason to thank God. If you were, if you were, if you were dead, you would be in your mansion in heaven. You wouldn't have to rent a house here. And lastly, A repentant heart. A repentant heart. You know, <laughs> David, David did some, ba some bad things. Nah, David did some bad things. Ah, David, David was a bad guy. Ah, you took another man's wife. You slept with her, using your position, king. Then she sent a message to you that she's pregnant. And I can imagine when David got that message. I know some of you are keeping a straight face, but you, you know what I mean. There are some messages you get, and your reaction is totally not sophisticated. Does somebody understand what I'm saying? If it's an African, he would just say, yay. <laughs> and instinctively, his hand would go to his head. And we must have said something like that. I'm finished. She's pregnant. I am doomed. I'm king, and while they were at war, I made the wife of one of the soldiers pregnant. I am finished. Wait till the Sun newspaper gets it, the mirror gets it. Wait till it hits social media. King sleeps with soldier's wife and gets her pregnant. All those headlines. So David said, I have, I, have to, I have to sort this out himself. So he tries to get the man drunk, sends for the man from the battlefield, gets him drunk, invites the man to eat with him, plies him. Don't you want some more? Some Remy Martin? Don't you want some more? A bit of champagne? This is the latest wine from, 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 from Israel's fine vineyards. Just plowed the man with wine. The man got drunk. But in the man's drunken state, because God wanted to deal with David, in the man's drunken state, the man still did not go back home. David said, go home, go home, go and stay with your wife. Have a nice time, you know. She's Bathsheba, she's a good lady. Go on, go on. you're on Bathsheba tonight. The guy said, I'm not going. 
David said, what's wrong with you? Go home. He said, I'm not going. He said, what are you going to do? How can I go? My king is going to be exposed? No, I'm going to sleep at your gate with your servants. How many know that is heaping coals on David's head? And then David David says, okay, if you're going to do that. He now hatches another plot to kill the man and eventually kills the man. Commits murder. But you know my conjecture? That when he did that, God looked at him and God said, I'm going to kill you. Because the wages of sin is death. So God said, I'm going, to, I'm going to make your life miserable and kill you. Do these abominations? This is my conjecture. But God now thought, ah, if I get rid of this, this character, who would trust me like him? When the lion came, his trust was in me. When the bear came, his trust was in me. When Goliath stood up and defied the armies of Israel, this young boy stood up and said, for defying my God, I'm going to feed your body to the birds. Say, if I kill him, there are not many out of these billions who trust me like him. Say, if I kill him, who will love my word the way he loves my word? Who will write those love letters to me? Who will sing about me, praise me, worship me? Who will say to the others, oh, come, let us magnify the Lord together. Say, if I kill him, who's going to do that? Say, if I kill him, how many people on this earth are grateful the way he is? Who's going to tell the congregation, enter the gates with thanksgiving and the courts with praise? Who's going to say that? Be thankful to him. Bless his name. Who's going to declare to them, for our God is good and his mercy is... Who's going to pour out thanksgiving offerings, thank offerings to me if I kill this guy? So guess what? God says, but if he doesn't repent, then I have to deal with him. So God looks around and finds prophet Nathan. So God says to prophet Nathan, go and visit David. When God wants to have mercy on you, he sets it up. Despite what you've done, when God sees a heart like David's heart, he sets up mercy for you. God set David up for mercy. Nathan goes to meet David and tells David a story about a man who has so much and another person who has only one animal. And the man decides to take the only, the only one that the, man, that the person has. And, and David is incensed because David is a compassionate man. David says, if that person is in my kingdom, I'm going to deal with him. Nathan says, you're the person. But it's interesting that as soon as Nathan told him that, he was convicted in his heart. You know what God finds a challenge with a lot of us? 
It's not that we sin. It's not that we want to encourage sinning, but provision has been made. That's why Jesus died. That's why he shed his blood. It is that we sin and harden our hearts. We hear. And rather than be convicted, we harden our hearts. Is that we sin, and whilst we are in the sin, we are planning the next sin. But once David was told that this is, this is what you have done, he was so convicted that he actually went into a genuine repentance. And Psalm 51 is an example of what true repentance is. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's the heart of a man who says, God, I messed it up. I completely messed this thing up. I did abominable things. I did despicable things. I did things that I thought I could hide from you, not knowing that you see everything. But God, I want to bring the one sacrifice that I know that you won't receive, you won't refuse. And doesn't he say that in verse 17? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. What could God do when he brought the sacrifices that God could not despise? God had to forgive him. And you know, this was in the dispensation of the law. You and I are in a dispensation of grace. But as Paul warns in Romans 6 verse 2, let us not be those that will say, because we're in a dispensation of grace, let sin abound. On the contrary, because we're in a dispensation of grace, Holy Spirit, give us the grace so that we don't sin and wrong God. David did pay a price for his sin. And let's not think that sometimes there are no consequences. That's why we must avoid it. Because God told him, for what you've done, the sword won't depart from your family. Your, cho your children will sleep with your wife. For the consequences of his sin. Some of these things are going to happen. But Nathan said to him, God has chosen to forgive you. Because he brought a broken and a contrite heart. You want that testimony from God? This is my daughter. As he testified about David. I found in him, David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. You want that testimony to be yours? That's, how, that's part of why he chose David. He says, Eliab, no, no, no. Eliab doesn't love my word. Shama, no, 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 no. Forget about, forget about him. He doesn't thank me the way David does. Abinadab, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. He doesn't have faith in me. So, but, and they brought the rest, said, no, no, these ones, their hearts are too hard. They won't even repent. He said, but this David, 
That's the one. I've seen his heart. He has faith in me. He trusts me. He loves my word passionately. He's so full of gratitude. And his heart is soft. Once he's convicted, he will repent. That's a man after my heart. I choose him. May that be your testimony and my testimony. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you and we bless you. We glorify your name. Talking about hearts. The Bible says that God knocks on the door of our hearts. Asking if we will open our hearts and let him in. That he may come to sup with us. And that's the start of a relationship with God. So maybe there's someone here who hasn't started that relationship. You're not allowing God to begin to mold your heart because he doesn't have residence in the heart. Yes, you've, go, you've been around church. Yes, you've been at a couple of services. Um, yes, you even read the Bible, but you haven't opened the door of your heart to allow God into your heart. Today, he's knocking on the door of your heart, asking if you will open the door of your heart and let him in. Father, we just thank you and bless you. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are taking this step to open the door of their heart for Jesus. And Lord, as they do so, Heavenly Father, as they become part of this family, O oh God, I commit them into your hands. Those of you up front, say after me, say, Heavenly Father, today I give my life to you. I open my heart that your son Jesus may come in. I give you a promise that by your grace I will live a life that's pleasing to you. Turning away from anything that might displease you. Today, by my prayer, my confession, I declare that I am now a child of yours. Born again into your family. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Welcome to the family. God bless you.